Because you get that legend is a phrase bandied around sport far too easily. Because you get that politics is more about what's possible. Because you get that a cryptic clue can have a simple solution. Because you get the benefit of hearing other opinions. The Irish Times. Because you get it. Enjoy unlimited access to informed opinion and real news. Visit irishtimes.com and get the first month for just one euro. T's and C's apply. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to episode eight of Gubu, a very special episode, not quite like the other seven episodes, essentially to fill in some of the gaps from the story we told in the seven part podcast last year, uh, and also to coincide with the publication of a book I've written about the whole episode called The Murderer and the Taoiseach. And I'm delighted to be joined here in the Irish Times studio uh, by two very eminent uh, journalists, both of whom were centrally involved in some, uh, if not all of the events that occurred during that extraordinary year of 1982. One is Joe Joyce, former Irish Times staff journalist and then with The Guardian uh, for 25 years or more. But Joe was also the co-author with Peter Murta of that seminal book, The Boss, which recounted that bizarre, unprecedented, grotesque and unbelievable year of 1982 and gave perhaps uh, the most accurate portrayal of Charles J. Hawhey I've read and that really went to the heart of this very, very complex and divisive character. I'm also delighted to be joined in studio uh, by the former political editor of the Irish Times, Stephen Collins, who's also the author of uh, several books which look at Fianna Fáil from the 1950s and the 1960s up to the present time. And Stephen, of course, was a reporter back in 1982 and was a first person witness uh, to some of the dramatic events that occurred after the arrest of Malcolm MacArthur in August of that year. So first of all, Joe, maybe perhaps turn to you. You and Peter Murta uh, wrote The Boss and The Boss looked at the year. But one of the central episodes in the book is the chapter on and how it impacted on politics. So when you think back about Malcolm MacArthur and the whole Gubu affair 40 years later or 41 years later, what are the first things that come to mind? Well, uh, that was an extraordinary story, obviously, um, having a suspected murderer arrested in the home of the Attorney General. Uh, to say it was unprecedented was putting it mildly. I suppose the main thing about uh, Gubu was that it came to symbolise that whole year and um, the amazing things that were happening in politics. And you know, if we go back to the start of the year or even before to 1981, we had in this in the course of 18 months, we had three elections. 
two governments that were hanging on by a thread, both of which fell uh, over bu- a, a budget and a prospective uh, budget. Uh, we had two very dominant uh, personalities in Charlie Hawhey and um, uh, Gareth Fitzgerald's. And then within Fianna Fáil, we had all these machinations that were taking place and a lot of chicanery, much of it which could be traced back to uh, to Charlie Hawhey. So what, what gave you the impetus for writing the book? Was it, was it the events of 1982 or was it the fact that there were uh, as yet undisclosed uh, uh, things about Charlie Hawhey that the public needed to know? Uh, I think it was initially, it was certainly the events of 1982 because that was a quite extraordinary year in which there was crisis after crisis. And uh, as you say, there were, there were two uh, dominant uh, figures in, in politics at the time. But in reality, there was only one dominant figure. Uh, all of politics actually revolved around Charlie Hoy, uh, whether you uh, loved him or loathed him. And uh, probably a majority of the political class loaded him, including many in his own party, which went back to the arms trial of 1970 and indeed went back before that to when Charlie was a minister for finance and a young minister and very brash, arrogant person. So I think all of politics, I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but all of politics really revolved about uh, around Charlie. Uh, what he was doing, was he going to get into government? Where you will, or other people are going to be able to keep him out of government. If he got into government, as he did in 1979 when he was elected leader of, of, uh, Fianna Fáil and became Taoiseach without an election, but then failed in his first election in 1981, uh, then uh, by a stroke of luck got back in, in 1982, but just by the skin of his teeth. And, uh, things began to go crazy from day one. Uh, especially with the the story of his uh, friend and election agent um, called Pat O'Connor, who was uh, accused of voting twice or attempting to vote twice in the, that general election. And uh, one of the most extraordinary things we discovered when we were uh, investigating, uh, writing the book and uh, researching it, was the fact that. Um, the Garda superintendent in the area had gone back to witnesses and got them to change their statements after uh, O'Connor was initially charged and um, subsequently learned from one of the people who were in Hohe's camp at the time that uh, the attempts being made by them, by the inner circle, uh, uh, Hohe's inner circle, uh, to make sure that Pat O'Connor uh, was um, acquitted of the charge even to the extent of getting senior lawyers to put forward uh, reasons for the judge not to acquit him, even though those reasons were not put forward by the uh, defence team at the time. And he was acquitted. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Manipulation, uh, all revolving around who you knew and who was wielding influence and who wasn't. And it was disgraceful. Uh, But at the time, it was tolerated because there wasn't the same level of scrutiny uh, from from the media and from uh, the public that, that perhaps we're seeing now? Well, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, I think um, the Pat O'Connor story was known on the day it happened. And uh, uh, the Evening Herald that day came out with the story in the middle of the um, uh, voting. And uh, some Fianna Fáilers went around his constituency buying up all the uh, copies of the Evening Herald. And after the polls closed at nine o'clock, a car drew up outside the Fine Gael headquarters in the constituency and dumped all the evening heralds on them. Oh, my God. 
and mm. RTE didn't didn't carry the story at all that day. It's hard to say there wasn't the same amount of media scrutiny. I think there was, but I mean. It requires an awful lot of digging. To, yeah, um, uh, maybe the point I probably didn't uh, put that to you uh, in, in as uh, articulate a way as I could have, but perhaps there was scrutiny, but to, to prize the information out was possibly harder than, than, than it is now. We didn't have freedom of information. Uh, we didn't have a, a lot of the legislation that has made uh, the job slightly easier for the media in the intervening years. Yeah, uh, I, well, I think that's, that's possibly true in some respects, but I mean, it still requires a uh, hard... Uh, Hard digging. I mean, I was taken by a quote recently about um, the late uh, Harry uh, Evans, who was the editor of the Sunday Times. There was a conference, uh, a media conference uh, in his honour, I think, recently. But uh, one of the quotes from him was that it's easy to sound off. It's hard to find out. Exactly. And uh, no truer word has ever been said. Uh, Stephen, just turning to you uh, for, for a second, just looking at some of the other extraordinary events that preceded um, uh, the Gubu episode. There was a by-election in Dublin West that was held relatively soon after the, ele- the election. And it was a, a classic old-fashioned stroke by Charles Hawhey uh, to try to kind of win uh, back a majority. Fianna Fáil was a minority government. Uh, they were trying to, to win an extra net two seats in the Doyle. So perhaps explain what happened then and how it backfired on the government. Yeah, well, when the Fianna Gael Labour government collapsed when the budget didn't pass the Doyle in January of 1982. Fianna Fáil took over. Charlie Hawhey was back in office, but he was depending on uh, the Workers' Party and on Tony Gregory, an independent TD, uh, for survival. Uh, but he came up with this stroke to try and increase uh, his security in the Doyle by offering the European Commissionership uh, to Dick Burke of Fianna Gael. Now, the European Commissionership had become vacant because Michael O'Kennedy, the Fianna Fáil nominee, had come back to fight the 1982 election in the belief maybe that he might replace Hawhey at some stage. Uh, so the commissionership was vacant, Hawhey was Taoiseach, and he offered it to Dick Burke, who had been the Fine Gael commissioner. Uh, and Dick Burke had been elected as a TD for Dublin West, so it was clearly designed to get Dick Burke off the pitch, create a vacancy in Dublin West, uh, and Fianna Fáil, assuming, they assumed they would go, were going to win it. Uh, it there was huge convulsions in Fine Gael, uh, because Gareth Fitzgerald and Fine Gael were not particularly happy. In fact, there was outrage in Fine Gael that Dick Burke accepted it. Uh, Dick Burke loved Europe. Anyway, Dick Burke took the job. So then we had the by-election. And the by-election, Fianna Gael threw everything into it. The late Jim Mitchell was the Fianna Gael director of elections. They selected a candidate, an unknown, called Liam Skelly. Uh, and amazingly, they actually managed to win the seat uh, against the odds. Uh, but it, a lot of dramatic things happened even during the election by-election campaign. One of the most famous was the minister for local government at the time, Ray Burke, planted or ordered the planting of trees around the constituency to make it look more green and leafy as the constituency of Dublin West. Uh, when the voters rejected the Fianna Fáil candidate, the trees were dug up. But that, that kind of conveyed the kind of atmosphere that existed. The atmosphere was, there was an air of kind of menace uh, as well as uh, Charlie Hawhey had a charisma and menace in equal proportions. Uh, I was recently talking to a, a number of people about uh, why do people like Donald Trump get elected or Boris Johnson? And, people, and a few Irish people were saying, oh, the, the, the English and the Americans, uh, they're not really rational. But I said, go back to the 1980s, Charles Hawhey uh, inspired huge loyalty, no matter what uh, he was guilty of. The, the, the voting twice by his election agent, as Joe has referred to, that didn't put any dent in, in, in Hawhey's popularity. Much of his behaviour didn't put any dent in his popularity. So he evoked incredibly strong passions. 
but having lost the Dublin West by election uh, in in the early summer uh, of 1982, and from then on things just seemed to go out of control uh, with one embarrassing event after another, culminating then in Malcolm MacArthur being arrested in the Attorney General's flat. Yeah, and just uh, during that, uh, during those early months of, of 1982, there was the first putative uh, heave against him uh, that was engineered by his rivals uh, within uh, the party. And you talk about Charlie Hawhey being a a uh, character that divided opinion, uh, that people, Marmite, Marmite Plus. And my own favourite quote about him is one that was applied to an American vice president in the 19th century who was corrupt, but it was also quite a brilliant man. And somebody said of him, so brilliant, so corrupt, like a rotting mackerel by moonlight, he shines and stinks. And something like that could also apply to Hahi. I always thought it was a perfect description of what Hahi was like. But you had your own personal experience with Hahi during the run-up to one of those heaves. I think it might have been the first heave in February of 1982, Well, Stephen. yes, indeed. I was a reporter with the Irish Press Evening Press group and the news editor of the Evening Press, Dermot McIntyre, called me down and said... We've had a report, somebody senior in Fianna Fáil has contacted us to say, oh, he's going to resign today. This, go up and ask him. So I trotted up to Leinster House with a photographer called Pat Cashman, and I was kind of safe in the knowledge, I'm not going to get near Charlie Hoy, I'm not really going to have to confront him with this. But Pat Cashman, the photographer, uh, was a smart guy, he stopped a TD called Ned Brennan, who was quite a famous TD in his day. He was a postman in, in, in North Dublin. So Pat said to him, Ned, I'd love to get a picture of yourself and the boss. Ned said, come on, lads, and up we went. It was the, before the days of accreditation, into the into the doll, up in the lift, up to Ch- Charlie's room, and Charlie was there with Ray Burke. Ray Burke looked at me as if to say, what are you doing here? I would have known him from covering council meetings. So the photographer got the picture of Charlie and Ned Brennan, and then... We've been ushered out of the room, so I blurted out the question, Mr. Hoy, are you resigning today? At which stage he completely lost it. He lost his temper. He ran at me, grabbed me by the tie, pushed me against the wall and told me to fuck off, spelling out the letters one at a time. And I was completely taken aback. And I thought to myself, what happens if he hits me? Do I hit him back? This wouldn't look too good. Luckily, the photographer intervened, uh, Pat Cashman. He, he pushed. He actually pushed him back and said, Charlie, come on, Stephen just asked you a, a, a simple question. So how he stood back and looked at me and said, what did you ask me again? I, I phrased it a bit more delicately. I said, we've had a report that you were thinking of resigning today. I'm just trying to check, is that true or not? He said, completely untrue, no intention of resigning. So that was that was the event. Uh, but interestingly, it did give me an insight into how, how he's, his volcanic temper. He suddenly exploded. Now, clearly, I had come into his office at a time when he was planning his defence. His, his leadership, his job was under threat. Uh, and suddenly a reporter and a photographer wander in. Uh, and he was taken aback by that. But uh, I could see how he intimidated people in his own party and how he intimidated senior people in his own party uh, to, to such a great degree. What was your own impression of him, Joe, around that time, if you can recall? Would it be similar to that of Stephen in terms of this personal yeah, thing? I, no, I had no personal experience of him really at all. Um, but I can understand exactly what Stephen is saying there, that um, it was this mixture of uh, charm and intimidation and he could fluctuate from one to the other depending on uh, whether he needed to or depending on what he wanted from you. Now, um, Gary Murphy, in a biography of um, Charles Hoy that was published last year, one of the interesting things that I thought he did was he, he set out this kind of dichotomy and he talked about him being known as Cahal Hahi all the way through school, right until he went to college. And then sometime afterwards uh, in college, this new uh, name, Charles J. Hahi, emerged. And Gary, in his writing, was kind of 
saying Cahill was kind of the public servant, the person who did things for the public good, whereas Charlie was a more, you know, it was a little bit like Gar Private and Gar Public in Philadelphia, here I come. The two kind of personalities uh, opposing uh, each other. So uh, when you were kind of evaluating uh, Hahi in, in 1982, was there those kind of two sides to his character as far as you could see? Or was one dominant over the other as far as you could ascertain oh, no. from your research? Yeah, no, there were, there, there were always two sides to his character. I mean, he could be extremely charming. And he could be extremely vicious uh, and he could fluctuate from one to the other, uh, depending on who you were, what he wanted, etc. Uh, no, I think he, he was, he was always like that. There, 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 there was the two sides to the character. Um, but he was, uh, very determined to get what he wanted. Um, and to go to any lengths to, to do, to do it and whether it required charm or whether it, re- it required intimidation. Uh, he was open to using either or both. Yes, and I just add to that, I, having had that experience with him as a young reporter, I met him later a number of times when I was covering politics, and he was generally very charming. He could be. He, I, I was also very wary of him, naturally, yeah, enough after that experience. Yeah. So I didn't uh, I probably ask some of the tough questions I should have asked because uh, I may be fearing the response. But the other thing I think we need to say about Charles Hoy is he was very bright, very intelligent man, and decisive um, cabinet meetings famously under Gareth Fitzgerald went on all night uh, Gemma Hussey has a famous quote about you know, the meetings going on until 2 or 3 in the morning having started at 11am and her abiding memory being of warm gin and cold chips at the end of the meeting uh, so uh, Hawhey's meetings started at 11 o'clock and they finished by 1 um, and I remember Seamus Brennan Tell him who who is who was in his cabinet later, telling me his first experience and he knew Hawhey well when he was appointed as a minister. And his first cabinet meeting, he went with some memo about something to do with the transport system, Dublin bus, or something like that. Uh, and he started outlining the problem, and Hawhey just cut across him and said, uh, "Seamus, not interested in what the problem is. What's your solution? Come back next week and tell me what it is." Move on, and and that that was how Charlie was decisive at cabinet meetings and ministers. Then they they prepared and they went in uh, with solutions or with suggested solutions, and he would go through them very very quickly. So the, the the intelligence I think can't be underestimated because that accounts for how powerful he was as well as his personality. Yeah, but he was also bedeviled by his own uh, deficits when it came to personality and motives, as well as those people who surrounded him. And we're not going to go into Sean Doherty, uh, who was the Minister for Justice. Uh, at the time in in huge detail during the course of this podcast but he was a person uh, and his activities would recur and recur and recur and perhaps were a major factor in the demise of that particular government and in in fact perhaps in the demise of Charlie Hawhey himself in the long run uh, when the um, tapping of the phones of Geraldine Kennedy and Bruce Arnold came back to haunt them uh, 10 years afterwards. We're just going to move to the the summer. Uh, The the government had survived. It was a ramshackle government. It was clinging on uh, to power by the slimmest of majority. They were lucky to survive until the summer. They won a by-election in Galway East which gave them a little bit of hope and they hoped that perhaps they might be able to survive through the autumn and through the winter. And then the two murders occurred that just changed the course of that summer and changed the course of Irish politics that autumn and into the following year. Paddy Connolly was the Attorney General at the time and he was the nexus between Malcolm MacArthur and Charlie Hawhey. He was Charlie Hawhey's Attorney General. He also happened to be a really good friend of Malcolm MacArthur's through Malcolm MacArthur's partner, 
Brenda. Did you know Connolly, Stephen? I didn't. No, uh, Connolly w- would have been a, a remote figure from a... I was a junior reporter as Attorney General. He was one of the top barristers down in the, in, in the four courts uh, appointed uh, as, as Attorney General. So... Um, Really, I, I recall that summer because I was working uh, in the press. Uh, obviously, the sensational murders and, and the hunt for the murderer uh, of, of uh, you know occupied an awful lot of, of newspaper columns. And I do remember being on duty on the night. It was a Friday evening when word began to filter in that the guards in Dunleary had arrested somebody, um, and. You know, the story appeared in the following morning, in the following morning's daily papers. And I was happened to be working that Saturday for the Sunday press. So I was dispatched out to the court, Dunleary District Court, where the person uh, who had been arrested by the guards was going to be charged. Now, at that stage, word was swirling around that he had been arrested in the Attorney General's flat. In fact, on the, on the Friday night, I think I spoke to some guard on the phone who said uh, the Attorney General had been, was sheltering him. So th- there was a, everybody was absolutely gobsmacked by the notion that the murderer might have been found in the Attorney General's flat. But was that true? So I remember at the district court, uh, the district court hearings are very, sh- very quick. Some Michael MacArthur is brought in and charged under section whatever it is of the Act, uh, remanded in custody and and out the door. And I remember the scrambling, scrambling over to the guard to come in to actually have a look at the charge sheet because they, certainly when you were reporting the courts, you had to see the charge sheet to get the exact wording of the charge, but also the address uh, because uh, we wanted to see what was the address that Malcolm MacArthur had given and his address was, Pilot View was the Attorney General's address. So for the following morning's paper, we were able to write the story that... Yep. The murderer had been arrested in the Attorney General's flat. And then, of course, the Attorney General, Paddy Connolly, had, was going on holidays that night or that day to the United States. And he took off uh, as if, uh, you know, nothing serious had happened. And so the whole, the media, it, went, it went crazy. There were all sorts of rumours about collusion, uh, about the kind of, what kind of relationship existed between Connolly and MacArthur, between what kind of relationship, how did, what did Hawhey know about uh, MacArthur, what did Hawhey know about um, uh, the, the, the whole episode so it, it, it was absolutely frenetic the international media became hugely involved as well because when Connolly landed in Kennedy Airport in New York he was immediately surrounded by mm-hmm. American media and, and the, the notion was he was fleeing justice in Ireland because a murder had been caught in his apartment and maybe uh, he, he was complicit in the murder even though he's the Attorney General uh, so it, it, it was complete chaos yeah, and I mean, what, what essentially happened was that when MacArthur MacArthur was arrested in, in Connolly's flat on the Friday night and on Saturday um, Paddy Connolly had arranged this very elaborate holiday to the US. He was flying to London first and then to New York and he was going to go on a tour of of several states uh, including uh, visiting some of the Civil War uh, uh, monuments there but he did tend to travel well. He was travelling by Concord from London to, to New York and I think he was he was staying in very nice establishments and, and you know, he, he was it was a lavish uh, holiday and he didn't want to forego his holiday but that was a an enormous blunder uh, on his part and it displayed, you know, he was a lawyer and he wasn't very uh, averse to, 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 to politics, but he, he, uh, he, his, his, he displayed a, a deaf ear 
uh, to what he should have done. And that was an enormous blunder on his part. The second blunder was made by Hohi because he contacted Hohi that night in Inishvikalon, uh, his Boltol uh, island off the coast of Kerry. And there was a bad line, or there might have been drink taken, but whatever happened, mm-hmm. the import of what had happened didn't land with Thai, and he's reputed to have rasped at the end of the conversation, bon voyage, uh, to Paddy Connolly, without realising that he, that MacArthur had been arrested in his flat, yeah. and also that a shotgun had been recovered from the flat as well. Yeah, I remember talking to PJ Marrick, who is Charlie Hawhey's press officer, spin doctor, confidant, whatever way you, want, you say it. And he, PJ Marrick's version of events was exactly that, except that, that Charlie Hawhey had had a lot to drink, was in Inishvikalon, the line wasn't great, uh, and he wasn't capable of, a, of absorbing. Uh, now, PJ has also said that Connolly didn't precisely, didn't elaborate, uh, tried to minimise the episode as if it all had been a, a, a slightly unfortunate uh, mix-up, uh, rather than the fact that it really, this was a really serious issue so how he did wish him well on his on his travels and then of course everything hit the fan the following day when uh, when uh, Connolly landed in New York now just going going back to the appearance by Malcolm MacArthur in Dublin District Court in Dunlira on that day the, the courthouse was down an alleyway mm. it was crowded there was a huge crowd there who were baying for uh, blood outside and I'm sure the atmosphere was 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 quite something else within the, the courthouse. Can you remember your first sight of MacArthur when he was led in? Because he was wearing a dicky bow that day, wasn't he? he looking was, like the foppish he was, yeah. aristocrat that, 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 that the image suggested. Yeah, he was wearing the dicky bow. But he, he looked quite innocuous in other respects. He was more slight than I expected. I don't know what you expect somebody who's murdered two people to look like, but uh, he didn't He didn't convey any air of menace or he didn't look sinister. looked a bit odd. Uh, and I think that was the striking feature about him. Uh, uh, everybody in the court was very quiet. It was a very short hearing in my memory. The guards, no more than the journalists, were agog. Uh, they, they didn't know what to make of the whole situation, of the, what the relationship was between Connolly and MacArthur. Uh, and they also were aware of the... Um, the whole political situation at the time. I remember talking to one guard there who did think that Connolly had been sheltering MacArthur knowing he had committed murder uh, and that this was really going to bring the government crashing down because how could how could that be? Uh, now, that turned out not to be true. Uh, but, but again, nobody knew what really had happened except that MacArthur was, was, was pretty well guilty. And then you had a press conference a couple of days later when Hawhey made his famous grotesque unbelievable, bizarre pronouncement where he talked about MacArthur being guilty at the press conference. Yeah, congratulated the guards on getting the right the, man. The, the right yep. man. Uh, and Frank Dunlop, who was the government press secretary, had to go around asking the media not to report that as it might prejudice uh, any trial. So, again, and if anything could go wrong, it did go wrong uh, it, during that period for, for the Hohe government. There, there was kind of a... It struck me, Joe, when reading back on it, and it's it's not completely analogous, but there was a kind of an element of the uh, of a Salem witch hunt. This is just in terms of the conspiracy theories that, that, that came off it, the conspiracy theories that there was some unbecoming relationship between MacArthur and Connolly of a government cover-up of how he saying what he said at the press conference conference deliberately of 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 secret kind of elite circles that were covering up a homosexual ring within the heart of government uh, and that that continued right to the trial and right to the um conclusion of the trial where Malcolm MacArthur was convicted for one murder but an Ali prosequi was entered in relation uh, to uh, the the other and of course many of those cons- I mean 
practically all of those theories had no foundation in in reality. Can, can you can you remember the kind of the atmosphere or the that kind of rumor mill that was happening at the time, and what did you make of it all? Uh, yeah, I, I suppose, and I mean, nobody knew what what what, what to make of it, what to make of it all. I remember getting a call on, I think it was the was it the Saturday morning when uh, MacArthur was arrested in in Connolly's uh, in Connolly's flat uh, from uh, a colleague in in uh, one of the newspapers who uh, said to me that it's a homosexual story, basically, uh, which wasn't true. Uh, I mean, nobody knew what to make of it initially. I mean, it just seemed, you know, as uh, the Google term uh, and as how he uh, put it, um, it, it, it with all those adjectives, it just seemed utterly bizarre. Utterly bizarre because and then it, it transpired in those days that MacArthur had been to Crow Park yeah, and it was in the uh, the old Corla VIP area in Crow Park with the Attorney General for an All Ireland hurling semi final. Yeah, there was a, a, quite a strong GA connection actually during that summer because when he after he murdered Donald Dunn, <coughs> yeah. he stole Donald Dunn's car, which had an awfully registration, and then he drove all the way into Dublin. And unbeknownst to him, he was followed for from from certainly from Chapel Lizard, but for maybe from beyond. By a, a by a car uh, full of Offaly supporters because they saw the reg on the car and they presumed that that car was going to Crow Park. So they followed the car into Dublin city centre, just to near where the central bank is. The car was parked and then this <laughs> guy with a cravat and with kind of foppish hair <laughs> comes out of the car and stalks off into the wilderness. They realised that he wasn't a bona fide Offaly supporter. He was somebody else entirely. But they were able to to, to come very quickly to, to come back to the Gardaí and give them... because. The Gardaí were then able to establish how Malcolm MacArthur had come back in, into into um, into Dublin. So that was, and then there was the Attorney General incident. Now I was talking to Stephen Connolly, who is Paddy Connolly's um, nephew, during the course of the podcast, and he said that uh, there were rumours that Malcolm MacArthur went to the old Corley section, that uh, the Attorney General met the Gordon Commissioner, that they discussed the case in MacArthur's pre- uh, presence. It was a very compelling and enticing story, but unfortunately, it wasn't true. Malcolm MacArthur and Stephen went to the Hogan stand. They bought tickets and they sat side by side but Stephen told me that during the course of the game that Malcolm MacArthur wore a pair of sunglasses and didn't look at the game at all he just looked around uh, Stephen noticed that he had grass stains on his trousers he looked very dishevelled and very like a uh, very a little bit disoriented and he noticed that he was acting oddly and acting strangely which of course which of course he was because he was wanted for two of the most uh, brutal murders that had occurred uh, in, in several years so once the uh, the court case uh, occurred, do you think that, um, or sorry, once he was arrested, and once the the, the furore over the press conference and then the subsequent uh, events and the rumor mill started, do you think that it had any implications uh, for that government, or for did did it affect that government? Did it have an impact on on politics, or was it did it just become part of uh, just an overall uh, um, uh, n- narrative? That that eventually led to the collapse of that government and further problems for Hawhey along the line. Oh, I think it did. Uh, even though I mean, Hawhey had no responsibility one way or another for what had happened. Uh, it just seemed another example of this uh, utterly chaotic government, where the most bizarre and unprecedented um, events were taking place. Uh, and in in one sense, uh, it was totally unfair to Hawhey because he really had nothing to do with it at all. Uh, but it, it seemed to be at the same time symptomatic 
of this government that was um, not exactly out of control, but more than a little wacky. Yeah, there, because Stephen was talking earlier about how uh, intelligent how he was and how decisive he was, and you know how 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 on point he was. And I think that he 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 was a player manager. If nothing else, he would have read all the briefs and he would have been on top of most of the issues that were important. But at the same time, every administration he had, there was always chaos at the centre of it. And for a man who was so decisive, he could be very indecisive himself at time and would judge the public mood. He, he, uh, uh, Charlie McCreevy fell out with him because he wasn't decisive enough. He'd promised to do one thing and then he withdrew from doing it when he was afraid that the, that the uh, sentiment of the public would go against him. Well, There was that as well, wasn't oh, there? Absolutely. Well, Hawley, like all politicians, he wants to win elections. So he famously in 1980 made the statement uh, when he immediately took over as Taoiseach that the country was living beyond its means and he was perfectly right. Uh, the, the Fianna Fáil manifesto, the, the economy was in, in free fall, the borrowing was rocketing uh, and he talked about the need to tighten belts. Uh, but he didn't do it and not just personally, he lived the lavish lifestyle himself, but he then didn't take the action required to get the public finances in order because he didn't want uh, to court unpopularity in advance of his first general election. So he postponed the decisions. So when he came back to power in 1982, uh, those tough decisions had been taken by Gareth Fitzgerald and John Bruton and how he denounced them for doing it. Uh, it took him a few months into office. Uh, he'd appointed Ray McSharry as his Minister for Finance uh, and McSharry then convinced him, look, we have to do it. And, they, and, and towards, the, towards the second half of 1982, they came up with a policy document called for the... Um, the way forward. I was about to say my colleague Jimmy Walsh at the time, who worked in the Dáil with me, an Irish press colleague, called it For the Wayward, which was... Uh, <laughs> but actually, the, the way forward uh, did plot how to get out of the economic mess we were in. But at that stage, the government was kind of falling apart. And there's no doubt that the Mac- Malcolm MacArthur Gubu uh, episode uh, rocked the public faith in the government, whatever public uh, confidence had been in Charles Hawley and that government, it, it was eroded. Uh, morale within the Fianna Fáil party uh, started to fall, fall to pieces as well. And it began to fall apart in the autumn with ministers resigning, with Charlie McCreevy famously put down a motion uh, of no confidence in Hawley as leader in October of 1982. That forced Des O'Malley and Martin O'Donoghue, two senior ministers opposed to Hawley, they had to resign because they were going to vote no confidence in Hawhey. So this became the second heave uh, against Hawhey's leadership. Uh, so instead of focusing on governing the country, the focus was on, Hawhey's focus was on how is he going to survive as leader uh, and Taoiseach. Uh, and when it came to a fight and came to a scrap, Hawhey was supreme at winning votes in the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party through a mixture of intimidation uh, and impassioned pleas not to let uh, the Fianna Fáil leadership be dictated by the media or by the opposition. Yeah, I think Raymond Smith <coughs> had a book actually called it Survivor. Is, survivor, it is, the survivor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was a survivor and, and the boss clearly showed that. Perhaps just um, um, almost finally, but could you perhaps describe the, the process of writing the book? I think yourself and Peter began writing the book in early 1983. And I think you booked a hotel room close to the Dole. Well, that I'm reading, from, I'm just going for the, where, where you actually interviewed people anonymously and, and on the record. Perhaps McGill, when it was describing it at the time, was perhaps being a little bit too colourful in terms of of uh, your methodology in writing the book. 
Uh, well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't colourful. <laughs> it was just hard work. Uh, no, um, we actually had an office in uh, Clare Street. Mm-hmm. Um, no hotel rooms. Couldn't afford hotel rooms, and uh, we had a one-room office, and that's basically where we uh, where we wrote it. it was like a and kind of a confession box, was it, Joe? It was a bit like a confession box. We had uh, people coming in and revealing all their sins, or some of their sins, or some people coming in and revealing some of their sins. Uh, and one of those extraordinary things that. Um, struck me at the time was, I mean, we were both uh, in daily journalism, uh, was how willing people were to talk when it was about a book, uh, like, you know, in daily journalism and in daily politics. The focus is always on today, tomorrow, surviving the next hour, next week. The idea of a book seemed to them so far away that they were much more willing to talk, whereas uh, people who would not talk to either of us uh, for a newspaper story were quite willing to talk for a book. And I suppose part of it was uh, perhaps the idea that the book would have a longer life than uh, tomorrow's newspaper. But, uh, yeah, we were surprised by how how many people did talk to us uh, and um, were very helpful in in many ways. And and you wrote it quite quickly as well. I think you had it finished by by the end of 1983. It was published in 83, 84, was it not? 84 it was published. Yeah, no, it was was all very fast. I mean, uh, I'd say we probably started it in about January or February uh, 83. We were probably finished writing it uh, in May, June, and uh, it was published in that that autumn. can't remember exactly when now, October, November. Uh, and uh, in your own experience, Joe, and and you were working in Irish journalism for for many years. Was was there any year, any era that compared to what happened in nineteen eighty two from your uh, perspective? Not 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 in my experience. I mean, it was just a succession of extraordinary events. I mean, uh, unprecedented, bizarre, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, uh, and uh, perhaps there have been other years like that. Perhaps the nineteen uh, seventies arms crisis was a bit like that. Uh, I mean, I was a, a youngish reporter at the time in the Irish Times and wasn't really covering any of it uh, except peripherally and um, certainly wasn't looking at it in the in the depth at which we looked at uh, 1982. And Stephen, the early part of 1983 when Fianna Fáil were out of government, there was a third heave against uh, Charlie Hawhey. So it looked like his 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 goose was cooked, as it were. But he somehow again managed to survive. But you had a particularly juicy anecdote about his method for survival uh, that you recounted in your uh, own book about Fianna Fáil. Yes, well, basically, Hawhey was on the ropes again. Everybody was forecasting that this time the, the jig really was up. I remember I worked in the Irish press. We probably, I wrote actually half of what was called his obituary, his political obituary, which was published on the basis that he was going to... Uh, resign uh, and of course he didn't uh, but I remember again going up to Leinster House on the day this, this final heave was due to take place uh, and the rumours had gone around that he, was, he wasn't going to put it to the test of the parliamentary party he was going to step down and I met a grinning PJ Marr at the bottom of the stairs and PJ said I said well is he resigning and PJ said you must be joking he said we just had a meeting upstairs I, Charlie read all the morning papers and looked around at the respondent faces around the table who thought he was thinking of resigning and said I think we'll fight that I won't say what he said but he's he, a particularly colourful word and he, so 
the fight was on and he fought and he and he won again. He managed to convince, uh, bribe uh, or intimidate enough TDs into supporting him and he stayed on as, as, as leader and then became Taoiseach again in 1987 and actually had his most successful period between 87 and 89 I think he probably fulfilled the promise that he should have delivered in the early 80s. The, well, he, the, way, the way forward was, was resuscitated. It was, was and, resuscitated. And, 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 and brought back and in they brought back And they, they brought in spending cuts. There were harsh spending cuts, but the economy, which had been languishing for about 10 years, was suddenly... Uh, it brought the public finances were brought under control, and the foundation was laid for the Celtic Tiger economy that came subsequently. Yeah, it was nineteen eighty two. Was it? So, same nine, as Joe Young. Uh, nineteen eighty two was a certain. I don't ever remember uh, any uh, year in politics being as remote as remotely exciting uh, and exhilarating. Like every day going into work in the newspaper, you didn't know what was was going to happen next. You thought it was uh, it, it was always going it was always going to be like this because Hawhey was, as Joe said earlier, just such a dominating character, a dominating figure uh, and politics was all about Hawhey. It was the Hawhey factor. Uh, Fine Gael coined the phrase, Peter Prendergaster, Fine Gael identified the Hawhey factor as being Fianna Fáil's weakness and it was in one sense because it polarised the, the country, but it polarised the country 50-50. Fianna Fáil were getting 45 to 47% of the vote uh, but the other, Fianna Gael and Labour between them were getting roughly the same and the Hawhey factor I think accounted for the fact uh, that Fine Gael did so well in opposition to Hawhey. Okay, well, on that note, thank you very much indeed, Joe Joyce and Stephen Collins, for uh, joining me in studio. That's it from the uh, eighth and possibly final episode of uh, Gubu Season 1. And uh, if you want to catch any podcast, please go to our website, www.irishtimes.com, or you can get it on any of the platforms on which you find your favourite podcasts. Uh, all that's left for me to do is to thank uh, Declan Conlon, our producer, and also sound engineer, JJ Vernon. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>